Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manny. In his new book, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment, Eric Siegel offers a detailed strategy for how business professionals can launch machine learning projects, providing both success stories where private industry got it right, as well as cautionary tales others can learn from. Siegel laid out the key findings of his book during a wide-ranging conversation with Mark Ruggiano, director of the University of Virginia's Collaboratory for Applied Data Science, a partnership between the School of Data Science and the Darden School of Business, and Michael Albert, an assistant professor of business administration at the Darden School. The discussion featuring three experts in business analytics takes an in-depth look at the intersection of artificial intelligence, machine learning, business, and leadership. So with that, here's Mark Ruggiano, Michael Albert, and Eric Siegel. Uh, I'm Mark Ruggiano. I am uh, the head of a collaboration here at the University of Virginia between uh, the Darden Business School and the School of Data Science. And our collaboration is focused on topics at the intersection of data science uh, and business, uh, which is where I spent about two and a half decades in the corporate world uh, working in various capacities that utilize data analytics and technology, uh, primarily in areas that uh, many people would call marketing. Um, I also teach at the Darden School and here at the UVA School of Data Science. And so I'm uh, really excited to be talking about machine learning with um, these wonderful colleagues. Michael. I'm, I'm Michael Albert. I am an assistant professor of uh, business administration at the Darden School of Business. Um, and I specialize in uh, teaching topics around data science. I teach uh, data science both to our Master's of Business Administration students and our Master's in Science of Business Analytics. Um, my research focuses on uh, the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence to economic problems uh, using things like machine learning to design uh, new market structures, for example. Uh, and so I'm excited to be here as well. Eric. Okay, my turn. I'm Eric Siegel. I am... Um a longtime independent consultant in machine learning for 20 years now. And I more recently spent a year as the inaugural bodily bicentennial professor in analytics at UVA Darden, uh, during which, and this was a, this is, a, I was the inaugural person in that position. It's a one year position during which I had the pleasure of working with both Mark and Michael. Um, and a lot of uh, the work that I did during that year was the genesis of what's now become a book called the AI Playbook, which is just shipping virtually as we speak. And, um, and the topic of the book has to do with getting machine learning projects deployed, which is what I'm hoping uh, will be a general theme of our conversation today. That's awesome. And so, Eric, you, you, know, you mentioned machine learning projects. And with all the you know, the headlines and hype around AI. Um, I think the definitions are starting to get clouded um, in certainly in popular conversations, if not elsewhere. So what what do what do you mean by machine learning and and how can we uh, how can we use a set that as a baseline for our conversation here today? Sure. I think ML machine learning is well defined, the value proposition is well defined in contrast to AI. Uh, machine learning is learning from data to predict. That's sort of an actionable definition of it or um, practical 
uh, applied definition. You know, it's the application of machine learning methods like decision trees, log linear regression, neural networks, ensembles. You learn from data to predict in order to target operations, such as which individual customer to target for marketing or inspect for fraud, or which word to generate next in generative AI, which is built on machine learning. How to change uh, a pixel in the next iteration during the generation of a new image with generative AI. So whether it's at that level of detail or another, it's at a fairly microscopic level, even in the business applications. And, and those are the more established ones. I suggest we, we uh, distinguish from generative AI uh, by calling it predictive AI or predictive analytics is one way to distinguish it. Those are the established use cases, uh, determining whether each individual is going to click buy, lie or die, commit an act of fraud or what have you in order to improve large scale operations because those those predictions directly inform the action, uh, the treatment taken with that very individual, whether to contact, to audit, whether to approve for a credit card application, whether to drill for oil in this spot, because not only only human individuals, it's individual cases or situations, whether to check out the satellite it might be at risk of running out of battery. Um, so it's all those large-scale operations that are made up of, of many micro-decisions um, that's that's sort of the long-standing, established, proven track record of of deployed enterprise machine learning, standing for decades. You know that's still where most of the money is and where most of the proven returns are. Generative AI, it's kind of like apples and oranges. That's a very exciting area. I fear it's overhyped, but I'm also extremely excited about it. Um, and that's where it's you know generative isn't a technical term. It's simply a reference to how we're using machine learning to generate new content items like writing and images. Michael, what does so that, does, was, does that, re does that sorry, definition sorry. or does that um, description of machine learning resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's roughly in line with how I view the definitions of machine learning and AI. I think traditionally AI has had, the, the term AI has had a bigger focus on um, automated decision making, which I think is something that has gotten a little bit uh, muddled and in, in, in you know kind of the popular usage. Uh, Eric pointed out traditionally machine learning has been more about prediction, though um, I think even that's a little bit of a gray area when you bring in uh, things like reinforcement learning, which are are, are you know, certainly um, a subclass of machine learning. But uh, traditional AI has often you know been concerned with you know, how do we go about doing kind of optimal search within a space? Or how do we go about um, uh, making decisions based on uncertain data? Um, which is certainly related to machine learning, but but somewhat distinct. In the common, you know, discussion, I think that AI has primarily come to mean uh, generative AI, which maybe is, is, is a bit muddled for our conversation. So I, I appreciate the distinction that Eric made with generative AI versus machine learning. Awesome. So, you know, my, my take on it is that uh, for the purposes of our conversation and, you know, exploring why machine learning projects um, aren't always uh, as successful or even uh, fail to deploy, you know, the, the definition would exclude, you know, some of the things that we're reading in the headlines about artificial intelligence these days. Um, what, what are, what, what do you guys think about, you know, machine learning? Um, it, 
you know, it's been a thing for quite a while. And as you pointed out, uh, Michael and Eric, but in my, you know, in my personal experience, there are many other things that have been around for a while and have gone through these cycles where, you know, it's a great new technology. Uh, It is expected and maybe even invested in to deliver, you know, great benefit. Uh, It doesn't do that or doesn't live up to expectations at least and people get disillusioned. Uh, And then we take a step back collectively and figure out, okay, how do we actually create value uh, you know, with some of these tools and technologies. My personal, the deepest experience I have in that is in a thing called CRM, which was, you know, the next best thing since sliced bread for, you know, half a decade or a decade, uh, gave rise to all sorts of, you know, predictions about how uh, amazing technology and data and uh, data science were going to, you know, change the way we interacted with companies and, and customers, uh, and then fell into you know what what some call the trough of disillusionment. So, you know, my two cents is that we've seen these things before. We've seen this cycle, uh, and we we ought to be able to uh, do things differently as you know in education, as scholars, as business leaders, uh, et cetera. What, what do you guys think? Um, I, my mission is to save the world from that disillusionment, and 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 I'm, I'm I'm here to do that right now. So I think that there's I think there's two layers of fog um, that are 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 preventing us from from capturing and realizing actual value in the successful deployment of machine learning, right? Which stands to improve essentially virtually all our existing large scale uh, operational processes across industry sectors. Um, and the two layers of fog are first the whole AI hype thing. And yes, AI is largely just a reference to generative AI in many uses, but it, it means a lot of different things. I think that the um, misleading narrative in public these days is that um, we're actively headed towards artificial general intelligence, computers capable of anything a person can do, including running a Fortune 500 company, you can or onboard it like a human employee and let it rip. Let's just call it what it is. It's an artificial human. I think that there's a, a prevalence of belief that we're actively headed in that direction, even within decades. And I think that's a misbelief, and I think it's misleading. And it, for example, it means, hey, even if we only have 5% of it right now, uh, whatever it is, um, that would be extremely valuable. So I think it's really important to quash that. The second layer of fog, though, even if you dispense with the sort of general mainstream hype and you focus on, so the the antidote to hype is to focus on concrete value proposition. I'm going to predict which cancels, excuse me, which customers are going to cancel in order to target a retention offer that it provides a discount or incentive to keep customers around. One way or another, these predictive use cases are about triage, prioritization, the allocation of limited resources or time um, and expenditure in order to run things more effectively. Numbers a business game, and this is the way to tip the odds a bit more in your favor. Now, here's the thing. Even if you've sort of cut to the chase and you have a pretty specific value proposition, predict X in order to do Y, predict customer churn to target offers, predict fraud in order to target the use of a 
of, of an uh, audit team or decide which transactions to automatically hold instantly. Whatever it is, that, that pair defines it, what's predicted and what's done about it. Um, you actually need to get a lot more specific. So those projects, even as concrete as potentially and, and potent as they are, they fail to deploy routinely. The majority of new machine learning initiatives do fail to achieve deployment and therefore don't realize value. And I believe that the problem is a lack of uh, proper planning and that has to be collaborative from the get-go um, between both the tech and the business, the, the quants, the data scientists, and the business stakeholders, the person in charge of large-scale operation that's meant to be improved with the deployment of a model. Until now, there's been no established standardized practice, framework, playbook, paradigm that's well-known to business professionals. But you need a very particular specialized business practice to run machine learning projects successfully through to deployment. Most business professionals don't even realize that, let alone know the name of one. So what I've done with the book is I coined a five-letter buzzword, and I'm here to evangelize it, and it's BizML, B-I-Z-M-L, the business practice for running machine learning pro processes, uh, because there needs to be a brand uh, around this concept a buzzword, something where it's going to gain traction and therefore visibility and, and common understanding. We need a specialized, customized practice for running these projects. And I think that then we stand to actually realize on the promise of machine learning. Whereas, although there's lots of successful projects now, the majority of enterprises are behind big tech and a handful of leaders because there's this lack of universal understanding around the other half of each of these projects, the business part. That's what we need to get in place so that we can now, right now, there's the decades of track record of success and also even more failures, but we can really, we've sort of only tapped the tip of the iceberg and we can really tap a lot more value. It is very practical and real. Machine learning is ready. And it's not about technological improvements. It's about organizational ones. One of the challenges that, that machine learning faces in a lot of organizations is that the skill set to traditionally the skill set to build machine learning models has been very um, kind of computer science tech heavy, uh, very statistics heavy, and uh, the mindset to evaluate them, frankly, has been very economics heavy. Um, and those two areas often don't really interact well. Um, I I would push back, and I will. I'd love to come back to this later in the conversation. I'd push back a little bit on this idea that we don't have a framework. I, you know, I think that there's room to improve frameworks, uh, but um, but I think there have been various iterations of frameworks in place. I just genuinely think it's really complicated. Um, you know, even for example, in you know, I think Eric mentioned the example of customer retention, uh, trying to predict churn so that you can uh, do some kind of intervention to um, avoid a customer leaving leaving your your platform, your product, or whatever. The one of the problems with that is that um, you can predict which ones are likely to leave, and and that's a well defined problem that you know we understand how to evaluate it. We can you know say say strong statistical things about the the quality of our solution, um, but once we add in the intervention it becomes much more difficult to, to say whether or not our models provided value. For example, um, we probably already as a company, if, if 
the hypothetical company all, probably already has some kind of customer retention strategy in place, right? Um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, legacy cable providers. They already know that you have to call oh, them. Cable. Yeah, they, they already know you have to call them to, uh, to, to cancel. And they're already going to offer various interventions when you call, right? If they built a model to predict churn, it's unclear that that, that would actually provide a lot of additional value because they have this 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 existing layer, right? So you have to really view the the quality of your solution primarily as how does it change the decision making process, um, which is really a subtle question a lot of times, right? And I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not providing an answer here. I just, I genuinely don't know how we, um, you know, really get. Um, you know, machine learning teams, data science teams, uh, and and their managers and other business units um, to to really focus in on kind of this broad decision question. That's that's what these models are feeding into. Mm. Yeah, I think the the challenge, you, you know, to continue the example that you that you uh, brought up, Michael, uh, of the cable industry, which you know is perennially at the bottom of the list of you know industries as far as customer satisfaction, customer experience, you know, and other things, uh, which is not news to anyone uh, in this modern day and age. But to continue with that example, right, I think one of the challenges as uh, a business person uh, involved in that effort that you described, the hypothetical effort, is uh, to understand uh, while we could build models that, you know, very accurately predict who is likely uh, you know, to to churn, who is likely to leave, uh, we can't accurately uh, value all of the possibilities that we might do um, to keep them. Um, at least, you know, we could, but it would take an extraordinary amount of time and money and other things that, you know, in a limited resource environment are likely better applied against other business opportunities. So, you know, that business person is put in a position of having to make a judgment, even with uh, an extraordinarily well-built and tested and, and you know, proven model at their disposal. And I think that, you know, getting the data science team and function and practice and discipline more integrated with the business practitioners across the board, whether it's marketing, operations, et cetera, is one way to bring that together. We can't make everybody an expert at everything, right? but we can't also put uh, the full decision in all of its complexity on the shoulders of someone who is only an expert in one area. So how do we strike that right balance? I think that's one of the areas where education and management practice um, can improve. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great way of framing sort of what the issue is. How do you balance it? Not everyone can know everything. My assertion is that we need to get the business side stakeholders to ramp up on a very certain semi-technical understanding, which consists of what's predicted, how well, what's done about it. As I, as I mentioned, what's predicted and what's done about it is sort of the way you – those are the ingredients that define a particular use case, how well the th second of those three is the metrics. Um, and you have to get involved in a certain amount of detail. It's not the rocket science part. It's sort of understanding how to get value of it. So I'll, I'll circle back to my assertion that 
<clears throat> there needs to be a, a, a well adopt a broadly adopted, broadly understood business paradigm. Um, I, I totally agree with Michael that there's been plenty of attempts at frameworks. One in particular that's well known called okay, well known amongst many senior data scientists called CRISP DM. Um, but my assertion a moment ago, just to clarify, and I'll say it more emphatically, there's been no established standardized practice that's well known to business professionals. And this is a business practice. It's the business professionals who need to know it. And that way, CRISP-DM, the, by far the most successful one in the past from 30 years ago, has the word data mining in its name, has never been updated, failed because it's not well known. And again, I think that even business stakeholders don't even don't even know that you need a very specialized particular framework or practice in the first place, let alone the name of any particular one. So what I advocate for is however you break down the, the life cycle, and I break it down to six steps um, from inception to deployment um, with the BizML thing. But however you break it down, the more important thing, the bigger theme is to get that deep collaboration and have the people on the business side of that collaboration having had them ramp up on the semi-technical understanding. And but I say what's predicted, how well, and what's done about it, I mean to a really concrete amount of detail. For example, not just who's going to buy or who's going to cancel, but which customers who've been around for for four months are going to decrease their spend by 80% in the next three months and not increase their spend in another channel because that wouldn't count as a defection, et cetera, et cetera. All the caveats and qualifiers that are business relevant, maybe three times as many as those I just spat out, to define that prediction goal, otherwise known as the dependent variable. Um, and to get concrete. So the examples you gave where there's this trickiness, of how do you know whether marketing worked, right? Well, you should have a control set, but you, uh, uh, listen, what I'm advocating for isn't necessarily sufficient, but I would argue strongly that it's necessary. Um, we got to get them on the page and that concrete level of detail so they understand, okay, with targeting response model, you're predicting customer purchase in light of contact. With churn modeling, typically you're predicting customer defection in light of no contact, right? And... Uh, and Michael, you know, you and I wrote an article together on that. Um, let's see, I'll remind myself the title of it. I have it right here in Analytics Magazines, run by Informs. To avoid wasting money on AI, business leaders need more AI acumen. And then the example we get into is the difference between targeting um, marketing versus targeting sales, where with sales, you're not going to necessarily be controlling the treatment of customers in that data collection in the same way. So you have to be very specific for, for targeting sales that you might be predicting will the individual buy, given how the sales team has previously interacted with them. Whereas for marketing, you're predicting will the individual buy if contacted with this particular marketing treatment. So those are the kinds of things we break down. And the problem we're identifying in that article that we co-authored is that lack of business understanding of the particulars there? Again, I'm not—I don't know how to solve all the world's problems as much as much as I facetiously said so up front. But I am arguing that these are necessary, uh, even if not completely sufficient conditions. Well, so I, I appreciate you bringing up the article because I think that um, in that article, kind of one of the things that we pinpoint, um, and you know, and this is a bit of a technical term, is the distinction between kind of. Um, 
predictive machine learning and causal machine learning. And, you know, this this idea that that things might be correlated and and therefore you can predict, you know, that uh, something based on whether or not something is correlated. But um, it's not – that's often – uh, at least orthogonal to what um, a, a business leader really cares about, right? I think a yeah, lot of time you care about you want to make people buy. Yeah, you and want ideally lovers. you want to make you want to make people not do fraud, but that's not usually the objective. Those those projects are just about how should we just how do we balance false positive and false negative rates as far as blocking you know credit card payment transactions. So you don't have to worry about causality as much with those projects. And and I and I think that we have seen huge successes in machine learning on on uh, projects where we don't need to worry about causality, right? I think like I think fraud is actually one of the best examples of machine learning applied to industry, right? Fraud detection for credit cards. Um it's probably it's it's maybe the biggest success story for for the, you know, uh traditional machine learning. I think the problem is that there are actually relatively few questions that are as, as as nice and simple in business as as like you know as well defined as predict fraud and just decline the transaction right um and even that i think you know there's uh, subtleties involved where you could imagine not just declining but doing some other kinds of treatments that where you might start to get into um you know concern about causality but um but i think you know going back to this example of sales versus marketing I worked with a company that had um, they had they had data on their salespeople, um, and their salespeople, you know, they then had data on conversions for for leads that were reached out to, um, and uh, and they wanted to build a predictive model to evaluate how likely a, a particular, you know, potential customer would be to convert. Um, the problem was is that the the model that they built had encoded the behavior of the salespeople. And so there was no real way for them to to alter business practices without making their model completely invalid. Um, they, they couldn't they couldn't you know predict the counterfactual, right? And I think that that's where you know most of the time what we really care about is we care about understanding what if I had done something different, um, and that's a really subtle question that I think people struggle with. I think I think in my uh, I teach a, a class on data science here at Darden, and um, I spend a lot of time. We go into a lot of technical detail. We have extremely sharp students. By the end of the class, I still think most of the str- students struggle with this distinction. Uh, it's just it's just challenging. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on ways to 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 you know raise awareness of, of, of kind of the limitations of traditional ML. Um, and there are ways to get around it, including costly ways, experimentation, things like that. Um, but that's a, that's a harder sell than, oh, I can run this Python code and, and come out with a, a deployable model, right? Well, I'll, I'll, the, I'll, the CE, the C, I'll just make one quick comment. The CEO of Her, Harris Casino is famous for saying he'll fire anyone who steals from the company or fails to use a control set. <laughs> Good. Well done. <laughs> it's it's uh you know Harris uh, and Caesars uh, are great examples of you know of a lot of this sort of enterprise transformation that uh, you know perhaps underlies the more effective you know development and deployment of machine learning and so I'm glad Eric that you know that you bring uh, that you bring that one up um, but you know to to take a half step back. You know, when we talk about, you know, the difference between sales and marketing as one, you know, one example of how uh, 
you know, business practitioners thinking needs to, you know, advance in terms of their understanding of how best, you know, to, to integrate, to incorporate um, machine learning. And, you know, on the opposite end of that spectrum, how a data scientist, even a senior one, you know, their understanding of sales and marketing needs to advance, right? The, the contemporary practice of, you know, thinking about sales and marketing together is to not think about them as distinct fields, distinct activities, distinct motions in, uh, in a corporation, right? A sales outreach is just a different channel, and it can be broken down into uh, all of the same constituent parts that any other marketing interaction uh, could be broken down into. And so, you know, what, what is different is th the fact that a human being delivers the sales interaction, right? And we can't quantify every aspect uh, of that behavior and every impact that that uh, potential customization may have on the outcome of the interaction. Whereas a digital yeah, I mean, ad- it's, it's, called a, it's called a control group, and it's much easier to control machines that do marketing than humans that do sales. And that's a great example, right? To a business person, you know, having a, a control group or a holdout on your, from your prospect list is throwing money down, throwing opportunity perhaps down the drain, right? Why would I not call on, you know, 10 or 20% of my prospect list because you need a control group, right? Mr. or Ms. Data Scientist. Yeah, right? and that's, that's, that's why that's I also vetoed. don't use Come up sets. with another alternative. Come up with another way we can do this. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I mean, there are the, you know, I, I think in, in the realm of kind of academic research, there are uh, alternatives, right? There are ways in which with, with careful measurement and uh, some kind of um, understanding of the situation, we can draw causal diagrams and use, you know, kind of advanced tools to estimate these causal effects without control groups, assuming there's enough variation among some dimension. Um, but I would say that, you know, there's a there's still a ton to get wrong there, right? And it, it requires a really, a really subtle look at the situation. Um, and um, control groups make that all easy. It's not strictly necessary. Uh, but um, in the, the article that Eric referenced, I went back to the company after seeing what their data looked like, and I suggested they, they, you know, uh, they collect um, some more data around the behavior of their sales team. In order to do this, in order to try to tease out these causal effects without uh, having um, uh, with, without having to run these costly experiments, but data collection is this, is itself costly, uh, and they were not ever they never able, were able to to actually collect the data needed, um, and so you know I I, I think you know it, it is. You have to have buy-in from the beginning of the project, right? You have to have people who who say, "I'm really going to. I understand enough about the issues to understand why you need this data. I believe in the final outcome, even though I don't know what the data is going to say, right? So, like, whatever that the final outcome might be, that it turns out this problem is unpredictable. Uh, you know, we we can't. We built our best model, and and we've got really no statistical power here. Um, but you've got to make all that that commitment and investment up front before you know. People start just building predictive models that that, that really aren't, aren't aren't well suited to the um, to the decision pro problem. 
it sounds like we all agree that it's harder with sales and marketing. But if it's marketing and you have a control group, uh, isn't it reasonably straightforward to at least establish how well your marketing campaign did? Oh yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but again, the cost is that you're you know you're you're burning some some subset of potential uh, customers, right? And that uh, with that control group, that's a sell you've got to make to to you know who's ever deciding um, whether or not that's okay, right? And I I would add, Michael, I yes. think f- for that person who you know is deciding whether it's okay, right? That person, that individual needs a deeper understanding of, you know, what was done to demonstrate, you know, the the effect that either they're looking for and not finding or the effect that they're trying to agree just happened, right? They're trying to confirm. And I think one of the things we're, we're saying here is that, you know, there are uh, steps that, you know, leaders in education, leaders in the corporate world, et cetera, can take you know, to improve their ability to do so. And, you know, I think one of those is, is certainly, you know, for the, for the business leader in question, you know, who's, who's being asked the question you just posed, you know, they need to understand the methodology, the technique, and the uh, interpretation of, of those in order to make a well-informed business decision. And most business leaders, in my experience, are not yet fully equipped to do that. Let me let me um, argue something uh, slightly from the other side, right? I mean, we could expect, uh, you know, the, the C-suites of, of modern companies to become, you know, um, um, amateur, you know, machine learning engineers. In my experience, that's, that's a pretty heavy lift. Um, the other side of it, and, and I think that is something that, you know, the certainly I'm working on with the students that, that I that I teach and I think the School of Data Science is certainly uh, very much engaged in is training our data scientists to be better at communicating the value um, you know to, to be better at thinking about the big picture to be uh, and to be more winsome in how they ultimately deliver the results to the stakeholders um, this I, I you know this puts the burden on on the data scientists. Uh, you know where they have to be really clear about you know when they're when they're presenting the the outcomes of their um, you know prototype model to their to their you know uh, CTO or, or whoever else they've got to do a lot of education they've got to um, help them understand what the limitations of the modeling are um, what the challenges around you know making good decisions with the model are. Uh, and so I guess there's a there's a question, you know, do we think that it's it's uh, likely to be more successful kind of going kind of top down and building up this this bridge or going bottom up and building up this bridge? Um, so could, can you spell that out for me? What what are the what is what's the metaphor? Yeah, so I, mean, I I think we've been we've been talking a lot about how how, you know, uh, decision makers in business need to, you know, tech up, right? They need to become more aware of what machine learning models are doing, uh, what they're not doing. Um, my, uh, I agree with that. I just also know from experience that 
that's not an easy task, right? Um, somebody who's well-established in their career, like it is actually quite challenging to, you know, while some of the concepts to us all seem very simple, you know, to lots of people, these are very difficult concepts to grasp, right? And so the the alternative would be to put the onus of, of you know, in, in of communicate of understanding and communication on on the data scientist, right? That they they have to come to you know the the decision maker with um, a compelling demonstration of value, right? That they uh, and a a um, easy to understand uh, view of the trade offs and 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 challenges associated with with implementing these models. And so, you know, the, the question is: Do we go bottom up by training the data scientist to be a more effective communicator to the decision makers, or do we go top down and try to train the decision makers to be more effective data scientists? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I did you see the Indiana Jones movie? I mean, people on both sides of the chasm have to do something to get across it. Like both sides have to participate. Um, I think that the I think that whoever's selling the project in a, that sometime is the data scientist needs to really does have a responsibility to take a more business-sized role. I mean, everything you just said, I totally agree with, and I think it's a little bit of an uphill battle often to get data scientists to recognize the need for them to take a more business-oriented uh, role to expand outside their cubicle and, and take responsibility on, on that level for the communication and for guiding the project in that way in a meaningful way, especially if you're selling it in the first place. One of the failure uh, stories I tell in the book is my own early in my consulting practice. I had a big successful online dating site and I said, hey, churn modeling, you've got these premium paying customers. Look at how many, there's a high churn, so many coming in and leaving every month. You know, if you just can predict which ones are defecting, you can target retention and potentially have a very uh, uh, effective, uh, you know, financially effective method that really increases your lifetime values and all this kind of stuff. So I did the, the, and they were like, cool, that sounds great, right? I mean, they were so flush with cash. And all of a sudden, as, as a brand new independent consultant, I was getting three times the hourly than I'd sort of even imagined. And I was like, this is great. I'm doing churn modeling. I'm actually using this stuff in the real world for a real world, world problem. And then of course, I, the power gets stuck in PowerPoint, right? That's the traditional thing. So I present it to them and I'm like, da dun dun da dun dun And I show a clip of the decision tree and, and here's all of the, you know, the, the projected returns if you target a retention campaign. Of course, when you project the returns, you're a lot more speculative for targeting churn modeling than for targeting response modeling, namely for the reason I mentioned earlier. You're predicting what would happen in uh, in lieu of contact rather than in light of contact, and that makes a big difference. Because then you have to assume, okay, well, even if you contact the right person, someone who is destined to leave, what are the chances you'll change their mind? And if you do, how much longer are they going to stick around, right? So there's all these assumptions uh, without a control set, right? And it... And, well, so uh, I presented it to them and they're like, cool, you want us to do something about it? You want us to start a new initiative, a new marketing campaign? Right? They were too busy. I hadn't sold the project properly. I'd sold the number crunching intrinsically. They didn't get there's an operational deployment part of it. Well, so, Eric, I'd like to just ask a quick question because I thought you're going different with the story. Um, it seems like churn is the goal of a dating site. Right, um, like you know that you should all the, the hope 
No, what, this was this was actually. Let's just be completely uh, transparent. You can read about it in the book. This was gay.com, which at the time was a male hookup site. So it wasn't about finding. It wasn't about true love forever. It was just. It was an online service. And besides, even if even if you're a more traditional online dating site, my father was a psychiatrist, and we would always joke about you want to cure your patients, but not entirely. Right, you're gonna lose their business. Yeah, well, I, I mean, there's uh, one of um, I I had a student who worked with a uh, in his in his job. He worked with a, a data science consultant. See, they were a big mining company, and this uh, data science consultant came back and said, "You could improve your operational efficiency by making sure that you don't run the mining trucks empty half the time." Um, and when they told him this, everybody laughed at them because you know, they're a mining company, right? You've got a big pit you're, that you're mining stuff out of. You drive the empty trucks down the pit, and then you drive the full trucks out. Um, and so there's, a, you know, it was it was an example that that stuck out to me as a particularly egregious one of of um, you know of not not you know seeing full the full context. But I, I agree that the uh, that in your particular example with the dating website. Yeah, it's it's uh, churn modeling is a, is a perfectly valid thing to do there. <laughs> yeah, and how def- how definitely. would you and Eric, how would you, uh, you know, to generalize that right? How would someone in the position you were in at the beginning of that story know uh, the business well enough to be able, even if you were incl- so inclined, you know, to modify your proposal, you know, to account for the fact that this is a site where people don't stick around by design. And, you know, to me, that that reinforces the need, whether it's driven top up, uh, top down or bottom up. We haven't we haven't dug into that yet. But either way, it reinforces the need for, you know, that sort of common understanding to grow. Right. The data scientists knowing more about business uh, and vice versa. Um, Eric, uh, I would uh, I'd love to for, for you to run down kind of why you think that. Um, you know, BizML is likely to be a, you know, a widespread playbook for AI, right? Like, what is what does BizML have that the the crisp DM that you referenced earlier? Like, how does it how is it likely to succeed where that has failed? Well, first of all, BizML is specific for machine learning. Crisp DM is sort of data mining in general, which is subjective, same as data science. Basically, number crunching using number. Uh, using data in a meaningful way. Whereas for machine learning in particular, where you have to define the dependent variable, that is to say exactly what's being predicted, and then in the deployment, you're actually going to integrate those predictions so they change existing operations. That means driving business processes with probabilities, right? That's really what it comes down to. Those are very particular things, and those are interweaved through the six steps. I mean, the the six-step breakdown is is pretty straightforward, and, and I'll outline it. But let me just say, what really needs to happen right now is the packaging so it's done in a way that it is understandable, relevant, and interesting to business stakeholders, which includes, amongst other things, a really nice five-letter buzzword, BizML. Uh, um, and, and, uh, and then, therefore, we can put on the radar of the broader public that are touched by or even involved in any way with machine learning projects, which is only growing, that, this, uh, that population the need for a particular business practice, just the need for it, the knowledge that there is one that's being generally adopted, and maybe even more importantly, 
that you need to get business side stakeholders involved in that level of detail, not the spark plug under the hood, but how to drive a car, momentum, friction, rules of the road, and mutual expectations of drivers. That's a lot of expertise to drive a car. Same level of semi-technical understanding uh, for business side stakeholders to run a machine learning project. So the understanding that they need to ramp up on what's predicted, how well, what's done about it, to get into the details. If they don't get their hands dirty, their feet will get cold, right? Get into those details in the process from end to end of the project. That's the important thing, right? Now, the breakdown into six steps, some do five, some do eight. I didn't include monitoring or maintaining up refreshing afterwards. I mean, it's included in the book, but in terms of the six steps, it's culminating with let's at least get the thing deployed and make it plausible that it could be deployed. The six steps break down in a way that to most data scientists, when you think it through, is really quite obvious and is along the lines of what people already sort of formalize it as. The main thing is to now convey that breakdown to business stakeholders. And anyway, the first three correspond to those three semi-technical facets. What's predicted, how well, what's done about it, but not in that order. So predict a deployment goal, which is what's predicted, what's done about it. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The first step is to establish the deployment goal, which is what's predicted and what's done about it. Um, that pair that defines the use case, the value proposition. The second is to get more specific about the what's predicted part and flesh out the full definition semi-technical details of the dependent variable, the thing that you're predicting. And then the third is the metrics, which have to not only be technical, but business metrics, like a way to forecast the actual returns or profit of the operation or the operational improvement. So those are the sort of pre-production. And then the other three steps are what everybody knows if you're a data scientist, which is prep the data, train the model, and, and deploy it. So what this is really about is not so much those six steps, but hey, let's let's bring the other side of the company into those six steps. I think, you know, I, Eric, I think the six steps and uh, BizML, uh, I think, are a great uh, proposal, and I uh, I am hopeful that the adoption, you know, is there in the practitioner and academic communities. And to connect it back to, you know, what uh, what Michael asked us a few minutes ago to wrestle with the. Uh, you know, how do we get all parties in, you know, an enterprise uh, on the same page and where that page, you know, contains more insight and understanding about the business and about machine learning. Right? These six steps, BizML, is a process, are a process that ensures that those stakeholders come together and realize when each one or the other don't know enough, you know, to proceed, and they can be educated by you know the person proposing the project or you know the the vendor or the team internally that you know is bringing it forward. But by having a set of steps like this, like BizML, we're able to have a built-in sequencing of interactions among all the stakeholders on a team on a project in an enterprise that need to come together. And those interactions will point out where the gaps are in knowledge and understanding if people enter into them you know, in an open uh, and collaborative right. way. Yes, hallelujah, right? That's what I'm saying. That's what I mean by deep collaboration on end-to-end -end on each of the steps, exactly. And I think that, to me, that, you know, that uh, bridges, the, bridges the, the, the gap, crosses the chasm, you know, 
solves uh, solves the problem in the Indiana Jones movie of you know top down versus bottom up, how to bring the two sides together. They are together because they are all uh, bought into this set of activities that you know that you've uh, that you've christened BizML. I'm curious. A number that's often thrown around is like 90% of machine learning models are never deployed um, or, you know, 90% of machine learning projects or whatever are never deployed. Um, I'm curious, uh, in your guys' view, is that 90% driven by, um, it's certainly some of both, but is that 90% primarily driven by um, data scientists making useless models. Um, this would be, you know, similar to the to the sales example that we talked about, where um, you know, this company had built a model that was useless, um, and they didn't realize it was useless, but it, but it was useless. Uh, or is it the um, the stakeholders being unable to evaluate whether or not a model is likely to be valuable? I think it's more the latter. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, but they kind of go hand in hand, right? If the business stakeholders aren't guiding, then the then the data scientist isn't making, they haven't defined the dependent variable uh, specifically enough aligned with the exact deployment plan. But the deployment plan's uh, concept is moot because it wasn't, it in itself wasn't fleshed out enough to have business stakeholders really understand, hey, I'm going to actually change my largest scale operations in a, in a substantive way with probabilities. Uh, uh, so by the way, though, that 90%, I kind of hear 80% thrown around more, but that was actually uh, one of the three main prongs of my work uh, during my analytics professorship at Darden uh, was was uh, industry research. And I, I um, hooked up with Rexer Analytics that does a data science, a big data scientist survey kind of convinced them to add questions about deployment success rates. And the results were that only 22% of data scientists say new analytics initiatives meant to drive new capabilities usually deploy in the sense that 80% or more deploy. So it's not like how many of your models deploy, it's how many data scientists say at least 80% deploy. It breaks down like that. You know, we've written it up. It's on KD Nuggets. Um, across all initiatives, uh, not just sort of new capabilities the way we defined it there. Only four, it was more, but only 43% that said that 80% or more. Or I'm sorry, let, let me uh, correct that. 43% actually say 80% or more fail. So, and by the way, the failure rates that we're talking about, and if you try to uh, estimate that into what it is as far as the number of models that could be deployed that aren't, um, are actually sim similar with just digital transformation initiatives in general. Like there's across a lot of other kinds of technology, there's there's a lot of reports with similar difficulties. But my assertion is for machine learning in particular, you need to get into those kinds of details about what does it mean to drive, I mean, ultimately, what does it mean to drive operations with probabilities? What do you need to predict to that, to that end? Probability of, wh of what? That's the dependent variable. What data do you need? Right. So th those details and getting the business stakeholders in there. And I think that it's a lack of deployment. It's sort of like the question is, is the business unwilling to or can't because they need more ML ops infrastructure or more data pipeline infrastructure? Either way, it's a lack of planning. So I see it as a business, an organizational problem that can be addressed by better planning. Yeah. In my, in my uh, last corporate role before joining UVA, 
um, I was responsible for uh, a team, uh, a team of modelers and and other folks. And I would say that uh, we we didn't. I didn't actually, you know, tally this up. But I would say that uh, less than ten percent of the modeling projects that the team had undertaken over, you know, my tenure there uh, were an active deployment. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the survey type responses that, you know, that we hear, uh, including the, the ones you mentioned, Eric, are, are points in time. And obviously if, we, obviously, if we aggregate those, you know, over some period of time, we can probably come up with any percentage of failure that we want, depending on how we, you know, how we combine those numbers. Um, but my team, uh, you know, they didn't, the, our projects did not deploy for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of those, I, I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about um, here today. That is, they weren't designed for broad deployment, right? We, we have a team, many organizations have teams that do a lot of exploratory work, right? To understand uh, and probe you know, where the opportunity uh, exists for the business or to demonstrate feasibility, um, you know, to narrow down the approaches that should be invested in, you know, to, to address a problem. And, you know, when you... Yeah, just to clarify, we did, we did in the question posed to data scientists of the models you developed with the intention to, de to deploy. Yeah, exactly. So that, that qualification is a very important one, as is the work that you know a data science team might be doing on things that are not intended to deploy right those those are oftentimes very uh, very valuable as well but the second reason and i think you you know you touched on this that my team uh you know had projects that didn't deploy uh, is the failure to you know for the organization to recognize that this wasn't just a model this was a, a transformation of how we did something major Right? If it's going to have major impact, it has to influence something very significant that the company is doing. And you know, to think that a group of people are going to sit you know, in uh, a lab-like environment for some number of months and come up with something that completely changes the fortunes of the company right, without having to get everyone else involved is uh, you know, a fundamental misunderstanding. Right? And so the, the main reason why but a our common, projects- But a common one. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was the reason why a number of our projects, despite our best efforts, didn't go forward because people loved the possibility and were turned off by the work that would be required to realize it. Well, this is the best technology. And I don't, I only mean that half tongue in cheek, right? It's the why probably you guys too, I'd say most techies, myself, I got involved in this because the core technology, the idea of learning from limited number of examples to draw generaliza generalizations that hold, uh, that pan out in, in new uh, unseen situations. Um, and and in, that, in that sense, the computer is automatically learning is the best kind of science and technology. It's the coolest. It's the most fascinating and potent and interesting. And the Harvard Business Review calls it the most important general purpose technology of the, of the century or something like that. Um, so we're using the best technology. Of course, it's valuable. And that misconception, I call it the ML fallacy in the book, that misconception that it's intrinsically valuable rather than the value, in fact, only coming when you act on it, when you deploy it, when you use it, um, 
that's sort of like we're we're because we're fetishizing the technology. We're in love with the technology. It's like being more excited about the rocket science than the launch of the rocket. Interesting. So what 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 do you guys think we, you know, will see? Uh, you know, if if everyone listens to this podcast, as I know they will do, and takes the lessons that we're sharing and reads the book and takes those lessons home to you know their educational, uh, you know, institution to their corporation, et cetera. Machine learning and and the way we use it and experience it today, regardless of what side you're on, is going to change, right? What do you think? What do you guys think the future is for machine learning and for the people who are engaged in it as users, as developers, or anywhere in between? I mean, I think Michael made a great point that in on a certain level, we can't hope for any sort of clear cut silver bullet where the really intractable challenge is getting, especially when control sets are needed and what it means to define them, experimental design, uh, where that's that's so hard. You know, what I'm advocating for of having a common language, understanding brand on the need for the practice, calling it BizML. Again, honestly, I mean, honestly, I see what I'm advocating for as necessary, and yet. I have the humility to say not necessarily sufficient per Michael's concerns. A big part of those concerns, by the way, kind of come from the fact that with the, a majority of these projects, we're using found data, right? Sort of like longitudinal studies rather than controlled experiments or any experimental design. And that's sort of what all the excitement about the big data movement was, is if you're collecting these this data residually. It's like a side effect of conducting business. All the transactions are getting logged. It's experience from which to learn. Uh, let's leverage it. Um, so the big and big data, you know, there's, we're going to run out of adjectives, big, bigger, biggest, because data gr- grows so quickly. But the, but the real, uh, what that word big is about the excitement, the potential value of found data, data that's already been collected anyway. But when you do that, you don't have a control set. Uh, you deal with a lack of causality. Um, and when you go to certain applications like marketing, it can be really tricky, tricky, especially if there's a refusal to have a control set on the deployment. Um, so that is that is an unsolved problem. Um, you know, I worked hard to scope out a book that's you know not much longer than 260 pages, right? So that if you see it in an airport bookstore, it's not going to be look too thick for your next flight. Which means that although I covered a lot of of ramp up for business readers on what I'm saying is semi-technical understanding. I don't get into control sets in that book at all. I do in my first book. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I'm that I think we're seeing, and I have mixed opinions about this, is the democratization of data science. Um, you know, historically, uh, the the technical skills required to use these tools have been relatively relatively substantial. Now, frankly, I can with a ChatGPT Plus subscription, I can go armed with a CSV file and ask ChatGPT to write me Python code and then run the Python code and show me graphs and give me all sorts of, you know, r- fairly good from a technical perspective uh, models uh, based on this data. Um, it's very easy, frankly. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see more and more people engaged in the process of building predictive models. It's which is good on on many in many ways, but I think that 
you know, the the flip side of having a, a significant technical barrier to entry to building these kind of models is that you also had generally developed statistical skills and 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 some you know sense of experience and perspective that can help evaluate what you've what you've produced and i uh you know and i think that that this this newfound access to these you know very easy to use kind of modeling tools and you know, i'm not i'm not including things like AutoML, though that that's another discussion that can build these really accurate predictive models with almost no effort um it's I suspect we're going to see a lot of bad modeling out there, right? I think that, um, you know, I, I think that we're going to see a lot of people, you know, run with with uh, these machine learning models because they are these this wonderful technology without understanding the context in which they're going to be deployed. I, I think I mean, that's I, I, you're yeah. saying when you say you have mixed feelings about democratization of data science. Do you really mean that, or do you mean that you're mostly have a negative? Because I would say I'm mostly negative. I'm more like, oh, gee, you know, you do need some expertise. And just to be clear, when I say semi-technical ramp up and collaboration, I'm saying that's a necessity on the business side, but you still need the data scientist human. No, no I, I actually say I, I have ambiguous um uh, feelings about mixed feelings about it. I think that there's a lot of opportunities for people to ask questions that um, you know the, the typical data scientist just would never think about, right? Because that's not their functional unit. Uh, there's a lot of, of uh, opportunity within an organization for people to experiment. I think the you know if there is a if there's a gate if there's a gate before deployment. Um, fortunately, I'm not sure, that, especially in, in small organizations, I'm not sure that there will necessarily be this gate before deployment. But if there's a gate before deployment, I think it could it could you know lead to kind of a creative flourishing within the kind of um, uh, machine learning space in a lot of organizations. Uh, whether or not that happens is an is an open question. But I I mean that's why I'm I have mixed feelings. I think democratization of tools, the the you know is is generally a good thing. Um, it's just that there's you know these these powerful tools need to be be wielded carefully. Yeah, indeed. And and the ability and the ability to use ChatGPT to make the Python code doesn't really introduce a new element to that. Maybe increases the prevalence, but there's already been longstanding paid commercial sort of super user friendly tools. I always call them PhD tools. Push here, dummy. Yeah. On uh, on that top on this topic, I, you know, I'm probably a little bit more extreme than than either of you. Um, I think that the uh, the arc that we have seen in many technologies is the same one that you know will happen that is happening here. And you know, if you think that uh, not needing to be able to rebuild the engine on your car, um, you know, is a good thing, then you know, not needing to start from a blank screen, and write your first line of code or not needing to start from, you know, a statistical theory and figure out how to implement it, those are also good things, right? But to the same, you know, on the, on the same, uh, by the same token, right, we, it doesn't mean that the car engine doesn't need maintenance. It doesn't mean that someone shouldn't have the expertise to make sure that the theory is, you know, translated into a tool with high fidelity, right? Or that the output uh, is yeah. meaningful and used appropriately. Right? But I think we're all going to see many of those safeguards also built into these same sets of tools, 
right? In the same way that some of the commercial tools today warn you about problems with your data set or issues that would make one technique more appropriate than another, right? And people who might not be able to discern those things themselves, you know, can see the warning and either figure out what to do themselves or they can bring in an expert. I think those are the types of things that are on the horizon, right? Where the expertise that is resonant in a data scientist who is trained, a trained professional, you know, can be applied at the top of the data scientist's license, so to speak, right? And not have that data scientist be doing the kinds of things that will become, are becoming everyday things. And that, again, that, that, push and pull to me is something that's embodied in and will be uh, will happen if both sides, all sides, all stakeholders are following uh, a process, a set of steps, you know, that that are most appropriate for these projects. And I think, you know, BizML offers uh, the opportunity for that. So I, I think the example of a car is interesting because we do have driver's tests before we let you drive your car, right? You do have to understand something about a car. You have to understand how to operate it. You have to understand what makes it safe, what makes it dangerous, right? You have to, and you have to demonstrate to somebody that you can use it um, with some with some care. Uh, you know, back to this article that um, that Eric and I wrote. Uh, you know, this, this organization I was working with. I went to them and I explained to them that their model. You know, I was the gate, right? That their model did not learn what they thought it had learned, that predictive power did not translate into value here, and that they needed to do additional data collection. And the response that I got was that if we don't build this model, marketing is going to build it because we're very focused on ML um, and we want to control it. And so we're building it. And as far as I know, that model is deployed right now. Um, and uh, and so there's, you know, I, I think sounds, there's... Sounds like <laughs> a bad client. <laughs> I, they, uh, I, you know, I, I, did, I did my part. I explained to them very clearly that this was not that this model should not be deployed. I went uh, went went uh, you know to to the boss of the person who I was directly working with at, at this organization to explain yeah. this, yeah. and it still got pushed through. Um, and uh, and so I think there is there is a danger here, right? That that these things none of the tools will ever. You know, data is agnostic to causality, right? And 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 you can't understand the the context purely from uh, any any given data set, right? So it's going to be impossible for any of these automated tools, any of these AutoML tools or ChatGPT or anybody else, without the business context, to ever provide a safeguard, right? Um, because it, it's just not it's it's not even theoretically possible. Um, and so you know, I I that's where my my uh, concern comes in. I, I agree that that needing needing to know how to write Python code is unnecessary, just like needing to know how to rebuild your engine is not necessary. Um, for everyone, yeah, for everyone, for everyone, for, for everyone, right? That. But I would say that 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 the that some element of these building and and particularly deploying these models is actually more akin to driving the car, where it is important that we evaluate somebody's capability of doing that. Yeah. Well, I, I would agree, and so I, you know, like I said, I think I'm a bit more. Uh, you know, out there on that issue than, you know, than either of the two of you are. But I would certainly agree that where we are, you know, today in 2024 is uh, not a place where, you know, all the risks have been addressed. And so there are absolutely challenges um, and risks. And, you know, I think in our environment at, at UVA and, you know, in, uh, in other contexts, you know, where people are uh, reading uh, your book, Eric, 
you know, there are a lot of business risks that uh, are, you know, growing because these tools and these techniques are more accessible. But I'm an optimist, and I think that through education, training, literacy efforts, um, by uh, better uh, by putting in better processes that bring together data science experts and domain experts in business and other fields uh, in you know an organized way, like we've talked about the six steps that we've talked about here today. I think you know I'm I'm an optimist that those steps will uh, ameliorate the risks and begin to you know unlock some of the power of machine learning and AI more broadly. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm optimistic. I think that. Um, uh, Michael's story should be should be qualified because I mean there's always going to be organizations especially smaller ones in this case right um, where they act on superstition right they're like they also hire a clairvoyant and they avoid stepping on cracks on the sidewalk and they think that's going to help their business right you can't there's always going to be situations where they just don't listen to the expert but I think that we're moving more towards data-driven culture and the understanding of, of that expertise. Um, I think that we need to make sure that the technical side of the projects are, are conducted in a more sound manner, but that the first more fundamental generally missing piece is a lack of a business, an utter lack of a business side process. Interesting. So, uh, my, my final comment is, uh, and you know, see if you guys see if you guys agree. But we've mentioned a few things, you know, throughout this conversation, that you know, even in our uh, our programs here at UVA and in other um, you know training and development initiatives, even in the companies that you know that I've been a part of, are just not front and center. Uh, we've mentioned the difference or the level of difficulty difference in collecting data that is, you know, specifically and um, most relevantly applicable to a particular challenge versus using data that's been collected over time for some other reason or for no reason at all. Uh, we mentioned, you know, increasing the, uh, the, the literacy in experimentation um, and causation. Uh, we, we, We've talked about you know the importance of ethics and safe ethical uh, use and application of you know data science and machine learning and these tools, um, and we've talked about the driver's license concept where you know we, we we have a hard time today in business and elsewhere agreeing on you know who is a data scientist who is a machine learning engineer and what qualifications do you have to have in order to be called one. Right? And without that, you can't you can't have a driver's license. There's no such thing if there isn't a driving test. Uh, and so, you know, we have those those challenges. And I throw those out there to you for you two guys because I think those are challenges that you know that we need to uh, be at the forefront of tackling, whether it's through books or education or in other means. Yeah, I'm I I feel like that's a burning question that I'm uh, to this day ag agnostic about. Is, you know how how should it be regulated or form formal? I mean, there's actuarial uh, standards for an actuary, um, right? But not for data science. And I I see pros and cons. I don't know who's going to do that, how you know, and how it's executed. Obviously, would be important. 
Yeah, you've got me. I mean, more people should sign up for advanced degrees at UVA. That's probably the uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the answer to it. <laughs> Is there anything else uh, that we that we need to talk about here, or have we solved all of the uh, problems that uh, that we can in one discussion of uh, of the AI playbook? Well, I think we've definitely asked a lot of the right questions, which is is often the uh, the hardest part. Um, why don't I mention that I'm going to be uh, back on the grounds May 10th, providing a keynote at the um, Knowledge Continuum, which is hosted by UVA's CMIT, the Center for the Management of IT. Awesome. Well, good to chat with you guys. Um, it's uh, it's always fascinating to hear. You're thinking on some of these uh, some of these complex and very timely topics. So, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, but thank both of you. I, that, I think that's a great discussion. A lot, a lot of great food for thought. Thanks for checking out this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we recommend checking out Eric's new book, The AI Playbook, which is on shelves starting February 6, twenty twenty four. If you're enjoying UVA Data Points, be sure to give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the world of data science. We'll see you next time.